Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Venture Property Podcast, and thank you very much for listening. Got some fantastic feedback this year already, and it's good to see that. So keep that coming. Again, just to reiterate that this is the first month of 2018, and it is a finance month. So we're going to be talking about everything in finance, how to get it, why you need it, all those kind of things. Today, as always, we are sponsored by Real Estate Slackers. If you want to get any more information on the real estate slackers, go to realestateslackers.com. That's a lot of real estate slackers saying there. But for those of you who don't know what it is, it is a free Slack group set up by myself and the legend that is John Corey. And this week, I have no other than John Corey on the podcast. And I believe that everybody needs a bit of JC in their lives. John Corey is a fellow tech geek and one of the most knowledgeable people I know. He knows what banks, investors, developers, everybody basically wants to see when looking at deals to see whether they are investable or not. So welcome, John. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And it's really quite fun listening to the introduction live, having listened to it a number of times when I listened to the podcast. Thank you. Did I do you justice? Oh, yeah, no, I mean, it just uh, it's sort of surreal to like, wow, actually, I'm not just passively listening with my ear, earbuds in, I'm actually on the session. <laughs> so mm. it's like, okay, I got to watch what I say. <laughs> yeah, now you've got to be completely cool, which I know you will be. You don't even know the topic of this podcast, do you? No, no, not at all. I figured it was, I'm in your hands and I trust you. Oh, well, you've always looked after me, so I will make sure that I look after you. And the topic... Well, no, no, wait, wait, wait. We do have to make it real for the audience. So let's just talk about whatever they want to know about. And if you have to ask some awkward questions, go for it. I love that attitude. I love it. So the topic is crowdfunding, which is absolutely all over at the minute. And we both know that I've even used this method to raise money. And when it comes... I know. When it comes to property, one of the topics that always seems to come up, I'm sure that you can vouch for this, is raising money. Because everybody wants more money for their deals, don't they? Yeah, well, the only people who don't have trouble raising money are the people who aren't very good at finding deals. Mm-hmm. And to be a bit blunt, there's, it's hard work finding good deals, but there's generally good deals out there when you put in the effort. And, you know, this is like a proper job, proper career. You're not going to do it on an hour a week. But if you're consistent and you're out there and you're doing what you do, Ryan, and you and Kim, stuff comes along, you build relationships, things come in later. So you eventually run out of cash before you run out of a good deal. And you can either just pass on the deal, like as in ignore it, pass it on as in share it with someone else, or find a way to raise some money. Mm. So that's pretty much why there's a need for crowdfunding. But can you explain to people who maybe don't know what it is, exactly what crowdfunding is? So um, crowdfunding started with people doing what is closer to charity donations or product pre-sales, where before it was um, a financial investment opportunity, it was a way of getting access to tickets or buying a watch that someone had designed, but they needed some money to put it into manufacturing. So it was a way of reaching out to a community of people. Uh, maybe there was a, a cause, a charitable cause, or a good sort of cause to back. In the investment world, which is where you cross the line between unregulated crowdfunding and regulated crowdfunding, this is where you're actually investing to make some sort of profit, whether it's interest on debt or whether it's equity you know, shares in a company or something. So once you transition into this idea of making a profit and you're, you're investing for a financial gain, then the country uh, regulators will care a lot. In the UK, that'd be the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. So they published in 2014, a guide, a policy statement 14.4, which is how to do promotions over the internet uh, to raise money and they call it crowdfunding. And you can look that up if you wanna go to their website. Hmm. That's something that I have spent many hours reading. Would you believe? And, I, I, uh, I remember reading it on a train to a property meeting. So. Yeah, I I remember reading it quite a few times and thinking, "Whoa!" Um, and then let, let me 
dip into something slightly. So the important point, and given that we're talking about real estate slackers and real estate, the audience for this podcast is going to probably mostly be real estate people uh, or people who want to invest in real estate. The, the regulators, the FCA regulates financial promotions. And financial promotions are essentially when you're offering an opportunity for someone to invest in your deal. And other than family and friends, and there's some really tight definitions of what that means, and the few other odd exceptions, the idea of promoting or sharing or speaking or emailing or putting a Facebook information to attract investors to your deal is a financial promotion. Yes, we could debate some nuances where maybe it's not quite a promotion, but if we just take the broad view, that's what it is. So if you're going to try to promote, it's actually a criminal act to promote when you're not approved to run a promotion. So for property investors, you make your money by doing property deals. You don't really want to have to go to jail for doing illegal financial promotions. And crowdfunding gives you a relatively neat and very slick process by which you can now promote your deals to the public. Mm. It's not worth the alternative, is it? Well, <laughs> there's a couple of people serving time now because they probably made the wrong choice. Yeah. I don't think I would do very well in prison, to be honest with you. Um, I think Kim would do okay. Um, well, I think Kim learned his skills and martial arts as a defense mechanism for where he grew up. So, yeah, maybe he would. <laughs> but why don't we go look at the positive? And the other thing that's quite interesting about crowdfunding, if you are new to property investing, is you can put in very small amounts, uh, relatively speaking, definitely small compared to buying a whole property. Yeah. And you can test out strategies by working with someone else. So you could possibly put 10 small investments into 10 different deals, possibly with 10 different people, trying out 10 different property strategies to see which ones you like, see what things seem to work well for you, and also as a way of testing out possible um, joint venture partners. Hmm. I really like that point because I read actually in Tools of Titans, a question, somebody asked a question about saying that they wanted to do they thought they wanted to do something in the world. And one of the statements back to them was just go and spend a day and find out exactly what that person does. And that's why I like the testing of the strategies because we know what property is like. It's every single week there seems to be a new way of increasing cash flow, et cetera, et cetera. And to actually be involved in that deal and to learn from that, is so much more than thinking that that is the way you want to go. I remember, I know that you use the pyramid of learning, which I really, really like. And that just really hits home for me. To be able to test whether you like it for such a small sum of money is just absolutely pivotal to, for me. And the complimentary statement to that too is you, as the person with the deal, you can test out the investors to see who is actually going to perform who's going to sign up do their kyc you know get their documents checked out put their money in um, you get to test people in very small amounts so it's very much like having a lot of first dates before you have to get too serious so you can figure out who you're compatible with who's on the same page who you're aligned with mm. especially because when you are going into a property deal further down the line a development deal for example if you know that that investor is good with their KYC, they're good with their documentation, they're good with their applies, then that gives you more confidence in that individual or couple of individuals because you do not want to be waiting to pull the trigger on a deal for six, seven hundred thousand pounds and being delayed by a, a potential investor. Correct. I, I was at a, I run a monthly meeting and I was speaking with someone after the meeting. And they were saying how they have this deal. It's, as far as they're concerned, a very good deal. And they've just had an investor back out. So now they're coming up short. And oh. they're about to run out of time. This is going to cause a loss of money, loss of face, uh, loss of all the energy they've put in so far. And it, it's it's fairly ugly type situation where, you know, everything was lined up and then something drops out. And having dependencies on investors for significant chunks of change, but 
they can back out at the you know the last moment mm-hmm. is really awkward yeah especially i don't know if that deal was with an agent but if that deal came through an agent which some deals do you're going to tar that relationship and that's i don't know in this one if it was exactly through an agent but that's definitely part of the collateral damage rather than just the financial side of it yeah there's so many issues and and things going on with that can i take us into what might be a slightly controversial direction of course you may so recently on a particular website there you know it's a forum or community there's been a bit of a blowout because they have individual members of the site who are participating in a collective group effort to essentially go after other individuals and they post commentary and questions and some of it's actually quite good because they're challenging questions and they're trying to get to the bottom of things and other times it's just a bunch of attack dogs acting badly and one of the things that's quite positive about crowdfunding is your deal is very public everybody's yeah. going to get the same contract or shareholders agreement or loan agreement if you have 50 investors there's no side agreements or second agreements or negotiations they're not 50 different legal conversations that have to take place everybody gets to know who's been in, who invested if the platform publishes that i know in cedars you don't really see who the investors are but broadly speaking you'll know who the investors are you'll know what the documents say and therefore what everybody else has for documents you'll build your track record if you're the person raising the money on the platform you can point to company's house or other places where there's evidence of who put in what and when they put it in and when they got it back and all the rest of it. So it's also a much more positive way to build a track record than a lot of private deals where people can then have mudslinging matches. In mm. some cases, it's like it's hard to prove the facts because the deal wasn't public. So one side says this, the other side says that. How do you yeah. know what the truth is? Crowdfunding, yeah. it's a lot easier. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why you spoke to me. And I know me and you have spoken at length about it, but that was one of the things you said to me about using crowdfunding. It is a way to build that brand and, and build the name and show people in the public domain the kind of deals that you're doing. and, and Exactly. Yep. And you have permission to, uh, from, is permissions maybe the wrong word, but the FCA is comfortable that you yep. can share this publicly in a fair amount of transparency, probably more than you should be sharing if it wasn't an FCA approved advisor, meaning an FCA approved platform. So it is a really positive complimentary thing to Facebook and all these other sites to say, here's what the basics of my deal are. These are the, this is the information that's been approved by an FCA authorized person to be shared publicly. So now we can talk about it. Um, it's just a, it's a much better environment for people to be conducting financial transactions. And it's a much more professional environment as well. I know that I've spoken to some very, very wealthy individuals recently, and they love the fact that I've done a a crowdfunded deal and they want to continue that going forward so that we can use a crowdfunded site and they can potentially split some of their money with some of their their friends money who they invest with as well but the fact that it is fca approved means probably more to them than the fact that i'm i'm successful and my deal stacks and i've got a history and kim's got a history being fca compliant is means so so much to them it adds so much to the deal agreed agreed and from a student's point of view say that you're a cash investor you're new to property investing, you want to get started, you have a thousand pounds or 10,000 pounds or a hundred thousand pounds. So probably a number small enough that you couldn't buy a property yourself, uh, depending on the region at least. So you could take your thousand pounds and put it into 10 different deals at a hundred pounds each. That is actually going to be probably a better investment of your money than taking a course. Completely agree. And if the, person raising the money wants to um, take on a little bit of extra work they can be sharing on a regular basis what's going on so you're you're an investor you're learning you're engaging and you've diversified so if a plane lands on a property but you've invested in 10 different deals you're not mm-hmm. probably going to get wiped out by that one plane so you have mm-hmm. diversification you have multiple ways to learn um, once you to 
develop a degree of confidence, say, hey, let's go around again. Let's do another one. What do you got coming next? I'm going to put 500 in this time. Um, people can ease into it. It's, it is so much more fit for purpose than the big chunky transactions when you're getting started. I completely agree with you there. So much easier to get started. And it's that the diversification is what the pros do, the pro investors. They spread their money, spread their risk, and then manage that process. Like when I was talking to Manish on the last podcast, he was going into detail about that. And then you get to do exactly the same thing with crowdfunding. Yeah, I was listening to that podcast, and it is very much aligned with this uh, managing the downside. And as he said, you you make your decisions based on who the individual is you're backing first. Then you look yeah. at the project, and it's all about managing the downside. It's not about making large bets on the upside. Mm. Which is something that I'm very hot on. Um, it's probably uh, something you do in your other sort of profession, the uh, the yeah. online sort of managing of the risks. I do it. I've, there's so many things, John, that I have brought from that into property without even realizing. And actually, you are the you are at fault for me actually realizing them now, um, because I know I spoke at an event for you. And um, you pointed them out and so did another lady in the room who was quite high up in an investment bank. And yes, since yes. That, I, I know yeah, who she is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Since then, I've actually started to think about the thought process from my trading and apply that to property and see where it's, it's come. For me, it was just second nature. I didn't even think about it. Um, well, we're going to capture that and we're going to have a podcast interview of you where you're going to share that. Yes, I will look forward to be interviewed by you for that one. So now I know that some of the listeners might know a little bit about crowdfunding, some might not. So can somebody look to raise 100% of the funds that they need for a deal? So they can. Um, at the same time, you can do that without crowdfunding. Yeah. And it rarely ever happens. Um, the key to raising 100% is having a deal that's so good that effectively your equity is already in the deal and it's how you're structured it, how you've gotten it sort of lined up. Yeah. I wouldn't say that you're going to raise 100% from the crowd for the average deal because the, the crowd's not any, they're not any more sophisticated or any more dumb. They're going to say, well, like, why should we back this? Why will the promoter, the person running the deal, the one raising the funds, what's going to keep them engaged. So while they want to know that they're not first in line for getting wiped out, they also want to know that the other side probably has some sort of skin in the game and it doesn't have to be cash. It could be they negotiated a super deal. They've done a bunch of work already on the planning or something. So they've already been, the, the person raising the money has already been putting in the effort and the time um, to get the deal to a certain stage then raising 100% of what you need to get it to the next stage is completely reasonable. Hmm. Now, let me flip this around though, because we really are talking to a property investor crowd. One of the things that's a little different is people need to think of their projects differently. They need to maybe think of them in phases and you can fund individual phases and the ability to fund an individual phase might be greater. And if you have success with an early phase or the early two or three phases, it may become much easier to fund a later phase also because you're building your own momentum, you're building your own track record. And I'll take a minute and I'll explain an example of this where um, a particular person, and you can find this deal on simplecrowdfunding.co.uk, as in a deal that's already been funded, it's already closed, uh, it's already in a sense almost over. So it's easy to look at this as a case study. So it was a property in Norwich that needed to get planning. It was a business uh, premises being converted to residential. It's grade two listed, I believe. Uh, all this was disclosed. You can see this on the site. And the gentleman in the company uh, that has the project, Grace Charles Properties, gentleman Stan Traviti. My photos, by the way, on the cover of this project as the lead investor. So if people are looking for it on the site, they can find it pretty easily. So. Dan was on a phone call with me. I was mentoring him and he said, you know, has a bunch of money tied up in a few different planning projects. And he basically said something along the lines of, gonna hold off on any more of those until some of the early ones come through. 
And I said, why? And he said, well, you know, I've got a certain amount of capital tied up. I've got other things I'm doing. And I just don't want to put more capital in until I get these done. And there was two things I questioned into. The first and most obvious was, well, if you had more money, would you do more? And he said, yes, if I actually had more cash. Now, Dan wasn't lacking for cash, but he sort of has his buckets. And the bucket for planning was a bit tapped out where the bucket for development still had lots of cash in it and all this other stuff. So it isn't that Dan didn't have the money. It was more that he didn't want to rebalance, so to speak. And I said, well, what if we could replace the money on that one and you could then get that cash back and go look for another deal? Do you have any others? And he said, well, I'm pretty sure I could probably find another six if we could find a way to recycle the cash that's tied up in planning. Then I could challenge the second part. The particular property, it's uh, Surrey Street is I think the, the address or the street name, is um, a property that's near and dear to Dan's heart for some reason. He's a Norwich guy. This is a very central location. It's a sort of trophy looking property. He wants to build it out after they get planning permission. He thinks it'll come out really nice. It'll be a great example of what they can do as a developer. And I said, well, how are you gonna raise the money for that? Because he needed more capital for the next phase. He already lined up the debt financing, but he needed to raise more equity, as you normally do. Mm. And he said, well, I don't know, but I'm probably going to go out and talk to investors. I said, well, why don't we warm up some investors with planning? And if they have a good first experience, they may be more interested in coming around a second time and raising money for the second phase, for the next phase of the project, the planning, uh, sorry, the construction phase. So that's what we did. The deal was put together. It took a few weeks to get everything organized, partially because it was all new to Dan's company. And the campaign went live on a Friday morning, and we wanted 15,000 pounds, which was essentially the cost of planning. But this was already funded. He had already fully funded this. We were replacing the capital, so he'd go on to the next one. 15,000 was raised by 10.30 that morning on a Friday. 47 investors got in. Myself, I was the lead investor. I bought the most shares um, when it comes to the crowd. So. What that is doing is raising his profile. That is building momentum with a group of investors who all could come in at roughly 100 pounds a piece. Quite a few of them were definitely at 100 pounds. It allows people to get used to the project before it gets to the next phase. And if he wants to raise funding for the next phase, then he has people who are warmed up, not that they're necessarily gonna invest. People have a fixed duration that they can get into. They put in their money, they could possibly lose it all if they don't get planning unless there's a good plan B. Turns out on this particular project, it was quite delayed because they had multiple reviews. And on December 23rd, I think it was, the uh, planning officer signed off that it now has planning. So it was a positive experience all in all. People are gonna make a good return. You can see what the numbers are. It's quite an eye-watering return that is being offered the investors. But it was a quite small amount of money to be offering the investors in total compared to the GDV and the cost of construction. So. He's building brand, he's raising profile, he's uh, warming up a bunch of investors, and he's recycling his money to get onto the next planning application. So there's so many ways you can use crowdfunding as a tool in your business. Is that like deja vu for you as well? The conversation that you had with, with Dan, and then a few months later, you gave me, we had the same conversation. Well, I did have it with you and Kim. I traveled up to Lincoln. You guys showed me around and everything too. Uh, I also had it with Marcus and Matt. Uh, they did a crowdfunding campaign for planning. Uh, they're in Rothwell. You're in Lincoln. Then there's Norwich. There's some other people. Uh, there's a guy down in Reading that's looking at a deal right now that I'm helping with. Um, it's such a reasonable way to raise funding for your deals and for letting other people in on your deals so that for someone like me, I can just sit here at my computer and say, I put a little money into that, put a little money into this. And mm -hmm. it's a lot easier on a rainy day than going out and tromping around in the field. I completely agree with you. And I like your talent, your energy, and the way Kim works the numbers. So I'm happy to back you guys. Mm -hmm. This is a legal yeah. way for me to do that. Yeah. And it's a good way of us to to build our brand and show the kind of things that, that we do. And, and it was very similar to the, when you were talking about the Dan deal, I remember, I think Kim said something along the lines of you to you, but, but we've already funded that John. And you said to him something like, that's not the point though. 
just let me explain and then you went into the benefits of explaining the reasons behind it and then kim got on board with it yeah i mean kim's a really down-to-earth sort of guy and when you when he raised that question and then we talked about it it suddenly the light bulb went off um and the easiest time to raise money is when you don't need it the worst time to raise money is when you're under the gun and your time's running out and you're short so yep. for all of the people listening if you don't need money but you're doing deals this is when you should be using crowdfunding this is when you want to get the kinks out this is when you want to build your investor list of people that know and love you who were complete strangers a few months before i completely agree and then just on that on that point by doing that you actually get to work with the investors then after that that you want to work with that align with you um, yes. because there would be nothing worse than putting so much time and effort into a deal potentially losing that deal and then grabbing the first investor who comes on along to fund that because that for me i wouldn't do that i would soon lose the deal to be honest yeah you don't want to be in those desperate moments and we could say it's like kissing a lot of frogs to find a prince yes and then when you've got your prince you or princess or princess yeah let's i'll kiss frogs for princesses I thought you might do that. Um, I've got. Hey, let me give you a quick uh, story about Nicole Bremner. So Nicole uh, raised money crowdfunding on our first deal. It was about a year ago. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the timing. It may not be a year ago, but it was some number of months. And she went to the platform on recommendation of uh, Totem Finance. Had said, you know, you should talk to these people that have this platform. And part of the reason is Nicole comes from a banking background and she knows some of the regulatory issues. And she wanted to open up the opportunity to some investors to invest with her while at the same time not causing an FCA problem. So she raises money, 90% of the people who put their money into the deal that she raised money for, it was a little bit over a million pounds in equity. Um, these are 90% of those people were people she knew already. She could have named before the deal was up on the platform that they were investors she's worked with or other things like that by deal four and she's done five at this point of the recording by deal four she could only name 60 percent of the investors that came in on a 1.5 million raise and she raised 1.5 million in equity not debt in 17 minutes where only 60 percent of the people she knew yeah it's amazing it's very very impressive left you speechless yeah literally it i remember watching it and seeing it happen and just thought wow that's some that's some good going that is very much so so probably enough on crowdfunding but people need to check it out this is you know they can ease into it and my suggestion for easing into it is put a little bit of money into a deal Practice being an investor, even if later you want to fundraise, because you need to know what the people with the money need to do. So you can tell them, say, like, oh, here's the process. I did it myself. Yes, I completely agree with that. But I'm not going to let you go on crowdfunding just yet, because I do have a couple uh, of questions. But okay. these are slightly, these will help people. Because crowdfunding is open to anybody once you pass the initial stage etc and you can raise money and place the, the raise on the site i want to know what do investors look for when looking at a potential investment to go into so first of all if you were an investor who goes to a pin meeting a progressive meeting one of my meetings or any of the other open sort of non-aligned meetings you're probably going to get pitched a JV deal at some point along the way. Yeah. Um, it's the same process. And as one of the better investors in my group says, first he evaluates the individual. Are they someone yep. you want to do business with? And he also eliminates any deals where there's only one individual because he wants a degree of redundancy or a degree of sort of integrity or depth on the bench by having more than one person responsible for the deal. So Kim and Ryan make sense where if it was just John, that's a problem because there's only one person and if John gets ill or something, then it's a, it could be a big problem. Mm. So after you evaluate the individual and the team basically, then he looks at the actual deal. First thing he does, and I've seen deals fail this test, is 
do the numbers even stack up on the paperwork you're being given? Does the amount they need match the amount they're planning on raising? If they don't add up, then what else can they not add up? And I've seen a few deals where it's like, this is a 50,000 pound difference. How are they going to deal with that? Um, you know, it's like a surprise on day one. So then you, third step is, you know, do you know the area? Do you have any sense of the market? Can you validate any of the information independent of the person giving it to you? Mm -hmm. Whether it's you go online, which is fine, but I would suggest you go a little deeper than just right move. You do some proper analysis, which means digging into the individual comps. So digging into the information, maybe calling agents, checking the rental demand. Does this deal fundamentally make sense? The same way you probably should be doing your analysis for your own deals. Mm -hmm. So person checks out or the team checks out, the numbers basically add up. The deal has some semblance of being realistic. Uh, now, what does Kim do? He says, oh, is it, what's his phrase? Not, he says, let's knock 20% off for a laugh. Yes. So have a laugh, take 20% off. Do the numbers still make sense? Can you finish? Can you rent it? Can you make the, the payments or get it sold and turn a profit? Because you don't know what's going to happen in the market. None of us predicted the um the vote with Brexit, that took 20% off of the uh, currency within a day. So you can get some real turbulence at the wrong time. So take 20% off. Does it still stack up? Can you de-risk it if it doesn't stack up? Another point Kim's made, I've heard him speak of this, is can you break it down and maybe like build up this piece and sell it off before you fund the next piece? So that way you have less exposure. So are there methods in the process in the main deal does it all line up? Can you take some money off the top and make some adjustments and see it all stacks up? Now, after all of that, if it still looks reasonable, what happens if plan A doesn't work? I don't care what it is, but plan A doesn't work. What is the plan B? Does the plan B show a small loss or you're still in profit? I mean, how does plan B leave you if you're stuck with plan B? What about plan C? One of the planning opportunities was on the site. They didn't get planning. In fact, at preliminary planning stage, they pretty much knew they weren't going to get planning because of some traffic issues. So they turned around and sold the asset in auction and turned a profit on all the costs that they had up to that point. So for the investors in that deal, yes, we didn't get planning. Failure as a planning uh, exercise, but it was a positive failure in that they actually made a profit to, for the investors. So those are some of the basics. And one last thing, by the way, a lot of people don't know how to even run the numbers. You need to be able to work a spreadsheet fairly well, or you need to pay someone to work it for you. Yes. And I think note, realizing what you are, where your strengths are and where your strengths aren't. If your strengths aren't spreadsheets, I mean, Kim cannot use a spreadsheet to save his life. I can. I do all the numbers on the spreadsheet, print it out in big for Kim. He picks the spreadsheet up, walks over to the whiteboard and starts drawing it out um, with lines all over the place. He literally draws the buildings out and everything. It's an absolute mess for me. Um, but for him that works. And then we get to the then we get to the bones and the figures and we get really honed in on it. Um, so just noticing where your your strengths are and like you say if you're not very good with spreadsheets get somebody to check them over that someone will help you out with that yes um what's interesting kim has such a different method than you do that the chance of making the same error is is much less um, <laughs> yeah because he won't get to the same conclusion as you but he's not following the same methodologies so a flaw in the methodology won't cause him to end up in the same answer as you do. Which that's a perfect way to sort of sanity check each other. Yeah. Now, just wow. to be blunt with this, um, there's a movie you can watch. I, I won't mention it right now, but the the Wall Street sort of community, the city of London community, investment banking community for mortgage-backed securities, there was an actual flaw in the model, which caused them to come up with the wrong valuation for the mortgage-backed security market which is partially why things went so badly in 2008, because there was a flaw in the spreadsheet in effect. I mean, it yeah. wasn't a spreadsheet, but the point is there was a fundamental flaw 
that most of the banks were using the same flawed model. Yeah. So even bright people can get screw these things up. Exactly, which is one of the reasons why I really like Kim's whiteboard, arrows, doodling, writing, because it, like you say, it's a different process to mine. So it stress tests stress tests the deal even more. But on the other side of that question, for people looking to raise money, what is the best way that you see? You've already sort of touched on it, so it might be just sort of going over yep. um, what you've already said. But what is the best way you see for them to get started? How can and how can people become more investable? So step one is for every investor that wants to raise money, you have to be an investor. So go register yourself on a crowdfunding site, one or more. Uh, I would recommend you look at a debt site and you look at an equity site. Some of the platforms can do both. Some can only do one. It doesn't really matter. The point is you want to get used to what the debt sites do. You want to get used to what the equity sites do. But go and go through the process. Go and get your documents checked. Pass the questions that you have to pass because the FCA wants certain questions answered. Uh, learn to put 100 pounds in or 1,000 pounds in. Go through the whole KYC and the anti-money laundering AML you need to understand this. So then that way you know what investors go through and you know what it's like. After you do that once or twice, fine. Now, now you've done it. Um, second is start with a deal that you don't need funding for. It's much less risky to your, your business and it's also the way you communicate will sound a lot better. It's like, we really don't need the money. We're just trying to raise a profile and test this out. You always want to test things when it doesn't matter. You don't want to put a bunch of people on the air, on the plane before you've ever flown it for the first time. So test, test, test. Get out there with this small deal, make it a success. Artificially make it a success by, this is such a slam dunk, it can't go wrong. And if it does go wrong, we're gonna fix it anyways. Yeah. You, you're building your track record. You, this is your showcase. This is your, your beauty parade, so make it a good one. And, but start with small numbers. Don't try to raise 600,000 on your first raise. It's a lot of work. <laughs> Yes, and a lot of money. Yeah, well, as you know, it's probably as much work to raise a small amount as a big amount, but it's a whole lot easier to top up a small amount and make yes. sure that campaign's successful. Yeah. I mean, I could spend hours on this and I teach people about this and there's a lot more subtleties, but it's it is to some degree as simple as I'm making it sound right here on this podcast. Mm. I completely agree with you, having been through the process. Um the goal was to to increase brand and to bring more investors in. And we did the small race for the planning aspect of the wildlife. Mm -hmm. And um, the goal was to build that brand. And we have done that. And some of the people who have invested have come forward and said, we want to go on a big deal already with you. And then some other people have sent messages saying, we haven't invested but we because we want to be involved in a build phase we are watching this deal to see what happens please get in touch with us after this deal has come through the sort of public channels and finished its planning process um so i can wholeheartedly recommend that yeah, and that highlights an interesting point ryan that some investors like certain types of deals or certain phases or certain yeah. risk profiles of a deal or certain durations. And your job as a property person is to, in a sense, offer good deals to the public, but recognize that different types or different phases of a deal will appeal to different people and be completely cool with that and attract different sort of sub crowds. Exactly. Because someone in for just the planning aspect where it's a higher risk, but a higher return, some are quite happy to forego that higher risk to protect the downside and actually be involved in the build phase where there might be plan lots more different plans, A, B, C, D, all of those plans. So my next question for you is what characteristics do you see in good investors and good property people looking to raise money? It's mostly about consistency of what they say versus what they do. Yeah. Now, I want to flip that slightly. No one's going to be perfect. Everybody's going to have mistakes. So to some degree, you want to also figure out what do they do when a mistake happens? How do they bounce? Are they entrepreneurial and they get back up and they make things right? 
or do they start blaming others or pointing fingers? Can they adjust to change, you know, things that happen on their project or to the deal? Um, there are some investors who get completely freaked out. If you say you're, you're going to do this in six months and a day and you actually finish six months and two days, they go nuts because you're late. It's like, come on, give me a break. And other times, you know, if you're a little bit early, it's like, well, okay, you know, they're okay with it. But so it, we're probably, as human beings, emotionally worried to like surprise me positively rather than surprise me negatively. <laughs> um, give me heads up when stuff's coming down the path that doesn't look so good. Um, as you said, try people out in effect by saying, you know, small amounts of money. Um, you can set your raise to have a small unit price so then people can get in with a little bit of money and you can also cap how much anyone can put in if you want to do that we did that with one project for a particular reason you can also in your case you had a minimum that you wanted to raise at a maximum so if you raised the minimum you had a plan for how you deal with the difference if you raise the maximum you'd be selling off more of the project but that was fine too so mm -hmm. keep a little bit flexibility in there and then like i keep saying it's like a first date your job in a first date is get to the second date and your job in the first date is to learn a little bit about the other person and whether it's a business sort of environment first contact or whether it's a, a social thing the reason i talk about first dating is because probably all of us have done it even if you haven't done a property deal before you've probably figured out how to say hello well this is a way to say hello as an investor mm. one of the things i really like what you do as well john is the is the getting to know getting to know people so and you're really good at, at highlighting things that people have in their past lives or current lives that will enable them to transfer those skills into property um, and how that has a positive impact upon investors and I know that I was I actually spoke at the last event that you did the the weekend event and there was a guy there who you knew his background and he was quite coy about saying it but his background was in the SAS if I remember rightly and yeah so yeah. there was I asked people to introduce themselves which is exactly for the reason you're talking about which is yep. it's easier to get people to talk to each other you'll discover in a lot of networking events that there are people in the room that can solve the problem you're having or or can help you out and all the rest of it but you won't get that far if you don't actually have a conversation so everybody introduced themselves and in lewis which is his first name says um he was in the mod and now he's a builder and he does such and such when it comes to building and during one of the breaks i bumped into him because we were out at the tea and I said, okay, it's very rare that anyone says MOD unless they mean they're a bureaucrat. And that normally means like a higher ranking person or whatever, or something, you know, you don't appear to be, the other way that people use it, particularly in the US when you refer to it as the DOD, or we say the MOD here, um, you work for one of the organizations that you're not supposed to talk about. So like, what did you do? And he talks about how he was in the Royal Marines for four years, after being told he could never be a barrister because he's dyslexic. It's like, thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Teacher. Um, but after four years of that, he thought he'd step it up a bit, so he joins the SAS, and he does three tours of duty in the SAS. And it was so funny to hear that because no one in the room really knew. It was sort of not visible. But what are you trained in the SAS to do, among other things, is to assess the risks. You know, so here's a guy that might be actually better trained at understanding how to do risk assessment than a lot of other people. And I don't mean physical threats to a site, but just the idea that your first plan doesn't always go right. So how do you adapt and how are you going to flex? Hmm. A lot of it is mental. It all is. It's all yep. mental. And how you process that information and then how you let that impact your day, your next action, all of those kind of things when i'm when i'm trading i'm not robotic but i'm almost robotic and it's not letting my realizing the effect that my emotions have on that next decision if something has gone wrong or right um because your first natural reaction for a lot of people is whoa and then it's almost a panic where 
if you take a step back and assess the situation, you're much calmer and you can almost see the light. You, you know the right path to follow. Yes, um, yes. And, and you are very talented in this respect when it comes to how you flex and get on with it and you don't sort of let it blow you off course. Another way to think of this is uh, to play off a TV show. It's like calling a friend. So you're yeah. not sure what to do or you think you know what to do, but you're under pressure. So call a friend and just talking it through with a friend. Now, I mean, call someone who actually has expertise. So <laughs> yeah. call a property person. But a lot of times, if you just sound it out to them, if you just explain the situation to them, you pretty much already know what the answer is before they even have to say anything. And if you're completely clueless, they may have enough experience to say, okay, I've been there, I've done that. I'm telling you, this is the only good choice. Um, yeah. And it becomes a lot easier then to make the right call at the right time. It does. And that experience teaches you so much. It's mm -hmm. very, uh, very kind of you. Thank you for that, Mr. Corey. Well, it's well-deserved and it's not just blowing smoke up your whatever. Um, this is an American just being direct about you are quite good at a couple things. One is remaining sort of calm. You have a natural sort of demeanor about you. You also have a, a desire to find a solution rather than find the problem. Once mm -hmm. the problem confronts you, you're not sort of woe is me, the problem's here. It's like, oh, an opportunity to fig figure out the puzzle. And then you have this um, history of working in your local community, in your local businesses, other than the online business. Um, so you're about relationships, you're about knowing who to call, you're about playing the long game, you know, that success comes from the people who just keep keep at keeping at it, mm. keep on keeping on or whatever the phrase is. Yeah, it's crucial. It's crucial for me. A couple of things that sort of cement me the way I am. It, one of them actually did come from an American book that I read. Um, and I have felt like it a long, for a long time. And it's a relatively new book. And it just reiterated the fact that it said something like life is... 90% events and 10% how you handle them. So you can't actually impact the event, but you can genuinely impact how you handle it. And a lot of people, when they look at me, they consider me to be very laid back, especially when something is going completely wrong. Um, but I just don't, pro I, outwardly, I don't give the impression that I'm panicking. And even inwardly, I just know what needs to be done. Um, yeah, a lot of times panicking won't be helpful. So if you really actually want to fix the situation, that's what you honestly want, then panic yeah. is probably the last thing you should do. Yeah, uh, if, if you want to look like, you know, a nut and you're going completely off your rocker, fine, you can do panic and maybe we'll put you in a West End theater. But, yeah. you know, most situations reward calm. They don't reward panic. Yeah, and I come from, and it's just over multiple things. It's like, oh, I'm a physio by trade as well. I've spent many hours in hospitals and I've been in situations where it, it genuinely literally is life or death. And if you panic, the person that you are with is not going to do very well from your panic. So spotting the warning signs and then getting involved in that is, is crucial. Um, but to finish off the interview, I have three questions. Actually, before you do that one little tangent, you mentioned earlier, um, that I identify and bring out who people are and all the rest of it. One mm -hmm. thing I want to impress upon everybody that's listening is you have to start with where you are. You have to accept who you are, what you're good at, what you're bad at. If I asked every one of you how tall you are, you could pretty much nail it. If I asked you if you're male or female, you'd probably know the answer. Okay, I won't ask you weight, I won't ask you age. There are certain questions that maybe are quote sensitive. But <laughs> if, if I say who's good with spreadsheets and numbers versus who's good with dealing with people versus who like to work outdoors. These are some of the characteristics that you can tune into and then find a way to be part of a team, to be part of an investment strategy that plays to your strength. Don't spend all your time trying to beat yourself up on your negatives. Focus on what you're good at and you can do well with it. Mm, I completely agree. And I also think that everybody coming into property has skills and value that they can offer sometimes they just don't know it yet they don't know that they have those transferable skills from their regular life coming into property because they might not fully understand property or they're new to property so it's a completely different world to them but a lot of the skills in which they possess are mm -hmm. repeatable and a massive advantage in property 
Um, yes. I always give the example of the the guy I was helping out who was a golf coach, and he wanted to get into property, but he just just I could see the dots, but he couldn't, and it was like he was looking at a potential deal. Well, he was looking for deals, and I said to him, "Do you coach anybody who's an estate agent or a commercial agent?" Yes. Have they ever showed you a deal? Well, actually, yeah, they showed me this one this last week. Okay, cool. What did they say about it? This, this, and this. And then, but I said, well, what's the issue then? His next issue was, I don't know how to price it up. Okay, are any of your clients builders? Yes, loads of them. Well, there you go then. It's it's looking at what you're good at and what's currently in your network for me. So a real quick tangent off of that, then we'll get to your three questions. So in a prior life, when I was in Silicon Valley, my direct boss was Steve Jobs, and that was for about a year. It, it's because of a certain set of things when it comes to the project I was working on and all the rest of it. So I directly reported to Steve. And many years later, he gives the um, graduation speech at Stanford University. And it's a rather famous um, speech that's been recorded so lots of people can see it. And he talks about it's only when you look backwards that you can connect the dots, which mm -hmm. is what he would uh, my interpretation of what he's saying is it's only then that you can see how things are related and how different points in time when you connect them is that's why you're where you are. And I hear that also from a different point of view, and this is a little bit because I work from, it also means that when you look backwards, you can erase the other dots that don't connect, that you can sort of rewrite history. And not everything you do is going to be successful or important. Some things you do now may become important later and you won't even know it. When I worked for Steve, while he was well-known in the computer sector, he wasn't as well-known as he is now. It wasn't the, like, oh, my God, you work for Steve. It was, I work for Steve. Like, okay, fine, that happens in Silicon Valley. So you, you have to get good at telling a story, which is your story. You have to be able to explain to investors how you're going to work on the deal or how you're participating, how you're part of the team, or how you're just the cash money for the deal. What is the story? Does the story make sense? And can you make it make sense? Or can you engage with the story in a way that plays to your strengths so that you're more likely to do well than you are to get sort of bitten by it? And you had questions. Yes, I was just letting that sink in. So when you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why? Well, the first person was Steve because I just spoke about it. And the second person is you <laughs> because you're because you're speaking and you've oh, done some amazing things with Betfair and other things. Um, there's a lot of people I know that are successful. Um, let me mention William. So William wrote some software. He was working at Next, which is where I worked at. And this is Next Computer, not the retail brand in the UK. <laughs> and he goes to Steve and says, you know, the development environment we have is crap. Um, it really is killing us. I can do better. They negotiate to uh, give him some time. So he has 90 days to go off and work on his own little project to, to come up with a better solution. He delivers. Um, it later becomes branded as Next Step as a product. There's a guy in Switzerland, a uh, French Swiss border, working at a government institution. And he speaks to the guy and he says he wants to. Um, when Williams, when the computer got released, he said that he wanted to, uh, this guy Tim wanted to get a copy of it. His boss said he could, but he also said that um, we have to have a project. So what ends up happening is Tim invents the web to justify getting Steve, uh, getting, sorry, Williams software that you had to use an X machine for. So node one on the web is driven by Williams software. It's a computer at the Science Museum. It's an X computer. And that's why we, why you and I can use the web from our little devices, because William said, I can do this better. You never know how big an impact you might have. Mm, I think that's very true. I like that a lot. And the second question is, what is the book that has had the biggest impact on you? The book with the biggest impact. Now, that's an interesting question, because I read a lot of books. Um, doesn't have to be a business book either. If there's like a novel or a fact or fiction book, can be anything. Yeah, no, there's a lot of books I read. Um, Time and Again is a fiction book. Um, we won't go into why that's cool, but it was great. Um, 
think and grow rich when it comes to understanding masterminds, the proper mastermind, not the particular implementation that's sometimes used in the UK for a particular property group. The uh, what uh, maybe a series of books. What I did is I spent a number of time, number of, say months, reading different books from the 2008 financial meltdown. Um, mm-hmm. Too big to fail probably is the seminal book that I think gives people really good insight if they want to read a book on it. Uh, the Big Short is another one. It's a killer book when it comes to how contrarians might get it right. And the the message that you don't get from the book is. There's lots of contrarians. It's only rare that they actually are right. So, you know, be careful about the storyline. Sometimes you get wrapped up in it. I have seen that as the film as well. So what I'm going to do for everybody listening as well is I started it on the first podcast. I do have one question left to ask John, but I'm just going to take this second to say Every single month, what I'm going to now do is everybody who I interview and ask what is the books that have had the biggest impact on them. If you share the podcast via the link on Facebook and like the page, I'm going to pick one person who shared it at random and ship them all of the books that my interviewees have said that month had the biggest impact on them. So you can literally get four, five, six, seven, eight books a month from me just by, by sharing the, the podcast page. So the first one is up with Manish Kataria. You can share that now. I will be putting the link up to this one pretty soon. And there is no, absolutely no worries. If you want to share every single one, then you get extra entries. So the last question I have for you, John, are you ready? I'm ready. What is the worst advice you see or hear in the property world? That one's an easy one. Um, so I was paid literally by Hewlett Packard to be online since 1982, meaning when I was first paid to be online was in 1982. I haven't been paid the whole time. But, so I've seen a lot of the growth of this online stuff and the whole social media before anyone knew what social media was. There are individuals and i'm one of them who will contribute quite a bit online we all have our opinions some opinions are better than others generally very much in a specific area lots of people can have good opinions in different areas uh, the worst advice you get online sometimes though is when people say something can't work um, they they just sort of poo poo it because they don't understand it um, you can definitely see this with certain individuals you and i know who some of them are where they have a really odd way of assessing risk and assessing change. And if it isn't something they understand, it can't be good. And if it is something they understand, it must be good. And it's like, what a load of horseshit. Um, <laughs> stuff happens. Good things happen. Bad things happen. Changes happen. Technology changes, whatever. And things evolve. So you need to be nimble. You can use online communities for advice. They're really good that way. They are not so good, though, when it comes to you can get into some vendettas or religious cults or sort of group behavior or, you know, this everybody that's been trained by certain education companies that is in a particular form, well, they're all going to sort of say the same thing, which is perfectly fine. But go ask the same question in another form and see if you get a different answer. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But be very careful about taking online facts at face value. Um, do your own homework. Don't listen to some people who are quite high profile, including myself. You know, that just because I say it doesn't mean it's true, doesn't mean it's good. I could get it wrong. Therefore, you know, check and recheck. Um, some people claim to be, you know, God's savior or something when it comes that they're going to save the world and property. It's like, well, some days yes, some days no. So when it comes to Listening to individuals, you have to make your own decisions. As Warren Buffett said, there's lots of advisors you can get advice from. At the end of the day, you have to make your own call. I love a Warren Buffett quote. What a place to end this podcast. Thank you very much for coming on, John. Just before I let you go, is there, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what is the best place for them to do so? And just before I let you tell them that, John does run a property meet in London. I'm sure John will give you all the details to it. And it is an incredible meet and one that I spend a lot of time going to. 
So, John, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they get hold of you? Thank you for that praise. Um, so, Google my name, John Corey, and you're either going to get a detective from a, a fiction book in New York City, retired detective, or you're going to find me. On Facebook, um, you can find me also if you put in the search. Look for the, the brand or company name, Property Fortress. I have propertyfortress.com. I have Property Fortress page on Facebook. Um, it's not too hard to find me. If you go to the propertyfortress.com slash events, you'll see the upcoming events. I'm doing some webinars like this week on crowdfunding. I list those on Facebook or other places. So sooner or later, you'll come across me if you want to actually look. And once you're connected, then you can start to sort of fill that out and learn more. And the other thing I do ask is that engage with me, engage with people that are in the community, and then it's easier for us in the community to point you in the right direction and say, you know, go talk to so-and-so, and Kim will have something to say on that. And then there's, you know, this person over here or some, or this broker over there that might be quite useful. So it's, it's a two-way thing. You can find me where you find me, but definitely engage and, you know, say hello or whatever it is. You don't have to be what you're not. Just be yourself. Thank you. And I just will reiterate the point that I think everybody needs a little bit of JC in their life. So it's <laughs> hey, actually one place to get a little JC is to go to realestateslackers.com. Exactly. What a call to action that is for these guys. Go to realestateslackers.com. You can get access to not only you, me, and pretty much a lot of other really cool property people. So thank you very much for coming on, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you. And for the folks that listened to this point, well done to you because I know I can talk. <laughs> Not as much as Kim. Shh. I think we'll end it there. We will see you next week, guys. Cheers for listening.